Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. In this segment of Manufacturing Talk Radio, we're going to be speaking with Stephen Gray, who is president and CEO of Gray Construction. They happen to be in the design-build industry for manufacturing. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Stephen, I'm going to have you explain to our listeners what design-build is. I know there's a difference between design-build and using an architect on one hand and a construction firm on the other. So if you could explain to our listeners what design-build is, please. Yeah, sure. So... um in the U.S., uh, really around the world, there's a couple of delivery methods for facilities. And uh, one is where the owner would, um, in a traditional way, just go out and, and hire a design and engineering firm, create a set of documents, and then ask the um, general contracting market to provide a price. The other um, delivery method is really, um, instead of having the designer and then the general contractor under really separate contracts. You have that uh, under one contract, and which is referred to as design build. And so that's, you know, in the last, you know, our company is about 56 years old, and we really started that in the mid 70s, really offering our kind of the manufacturing world uh, that service or that contracting method to where. Um, we provide the design and engineering services and the construction services. And uh, some um, some customers refer to it in a kind of a simple way as, hey, you know, we, we've got one one throat to choke. So uh, that's, that's kind of uh, <laughs> a simple way how they kind of look at it. And it's, for them, it's, you know, in the manufacturing world, I think it's it works because it's, it's kind of simple, um, and you know, these folks are all about efficiencies. And for the manufacturing world, it's an efficient way to deliver a service. So, clear enough. Yeah, I, uh, I'm guessing that uh, it also avoids the process in which I'm standing there watching my building go up, and I realize that the door is supposed to be over there and it's over here because you guys are doing it all from end to end and the the general contractor isn't seeing something on the architect's prints different than how you saw it. Yeah, it, yeah, you're right on there. It's um, Instead of having a, a double layer of, of working through an issue, you, you really just have one layer of working through an issue. And in our world, you know, it's... Uh, the person who's responsible for the project is the the project manager. And so that project manager is really uh, directing construction services and the design and engineering services. So it's uh, it it works pretty well in that in that respect. Kind of uh, you see correct. it uh, common from uh, the, the Asian customers as well, especially the Jap- Japanese are pretty friendly to this method. Uh, South the Koreans maybe 
uh, Chinese becoming familiar with it. Um, European manufacturers, um, probably less so than the uh, um, uh, Japanese, I would say. But everybody, all manufacturers really kind of understand it. I'll put it that way. Uh, I, I have a question for you. I stepped in a moment or two after the show started. Uh, I'm Lou Weiss, and I just uh, I hope I didn't miss this point. Uh, your function of, of sorts is a unique version of a general contractor. Is that correct? Yeah, right. You're on there, Lou. Uh, all right. The second part to that is uh, are you using different uh, outsourced uh, facilities to do what you do, or is everything that you do, even though it's like a general contractor uh, version, is it all in house? Do you well, do uh, all your design? Do you do yeah, your, but, all of? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you got to the. I mean, that's kind of the question. And okay. for our company, you know, we really started building that resource in house, and probably the the mid to late set late 70s um, mm -hmm. we really made that kind of overhead commitment then and grew it really to where we are now and you know we've got a design staff now of almost 90 people uh, 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 licensed architects and, and licensed engineers so mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit unique because you know we made that commitment to carry that overhead the other choice which you spoke of is um, is not to carry the overhead, but use other design firms to help you out. Occasionally, mm -hmm. we'll do that too in, in the right circumstances. Stephen, uh, uh, Stephen, the uh, you know Lou is uh, with All Metals and Forge Group. They're the <clears throat> the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio, and they watch religiously the. Uh, purchasing Managers Index put out by the ISM, the Credit Managers Index, the Job Shop reports, a number of different uh, reporting mechanisms on what's happening in manufacturing. How right. do you see U.S. manufacturing growth and output at the present time? You know, um, I've kind of been watching the, I guess, the little dip that uh, we're seeing. However, we really haven't seen that yet. Uh, we still have, what, you know, we've got a strong pipeline, I think, probably for the next, you know, when I say the pipeline, the pipeline of projects that we're proposing on, uh, we see a solid pipeline probably for the next six months or so. Uh, we really haven't seen a dip. You know, what? You know, our, our uh, services are, you know, capital projects that are usually take, you know, 12 to 18 months to deliver. They probably take about six months in the proposal stage. So... Uh, it, it takes a while for a slowdown to ripple to us. Follow me? Right, right. I, I'm just interested in comparison how this looks to you, you know, as maybe compared to two or three years ago when in 2012 through maybe 14 we were seeing some pretty good pickup in manufacturing. You're really doing future build for capacity. Right. Uh, are you busier today than you were then? Yeah, we are, um, actually. And, you know, things changed for us in, in the summer of 2010, uh, coming out of the recession. And we've uh, we've seen a 
you know, pretty steady growth since then. I mean, you know, obviously not, we, we've seen no fall off like we did in seven, eight, and nine. Um, but, you know, part, I think part of the reason is that, um, for us anyway, um, kind of uh, 10, 11, and 12, and we really made a commitment to, to staff up with uh, engineers um, who could really service this market. So while there may have been some kind of fall off, we were kind of ready for it. And because we've really been, you know, out there finding, you know, those manufacturing customers, we spent a lot of resources on our um, a sales team. Even during the downturn, you know, we never did in, in the recession of 8 and 9. We just never did think it was a good move to, to back off on the sales team. We actually went the other way. <laughs> Added sales, and uh, I I must interrupt you for one moment yeah, regarding yeah, sure. about, about the sales team. Just as a bit of an ad lib story, there's one yeah. very big um, uh, forge facility in Chicago that was doing 500 million dollars a year, and they went to 157 million a year. And the first thing they did was fire all of their outside salespeople who they did not pay a salary to, only commission. Yeah. So there's a little, lot of misguided thoughts when, when people are running their, their company. And I would imagine it is to, to build a new facility and design a new facility, uh, they could make the same kind of foolish mistakes without the aid of the um, outside set of pair, a pair of ears and eyes to be able to see the better way to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I see that as partly your role. Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. You know, we, um, you know, during that downturn, um, you know, and I think all of us kind of face these choices in the recession. You know, what other industries do you want to try to service? Well, you know, people were knocking on, you know, advocating, hey, we need to look at healthcare. Hey, we need to look at institutional. And, you know, we just didn't, you know, our people just didn't have the resume for it. And we just decided to just to bear down and, and you know, keep our relationships solid, even though that our customers may not be designing or building. And we just said, hey, we're going to hold on as long as we can, and we're just not going to lay people off because, you know, we had a little bit of faith that things were going to turn around. And when they did turn around, that we would have the right people to service the manufacturing world. And, you know, fortunately, you know, it was, you know, I, I won't lie to you, it was pretty tight. <laughs> but uh, I guess summer, yeah, summer of 2010 was a big deal for us because, you know, Siemens, Caterpillar, Whirlpool were all big projects for us and, you know, nice manufacturing projects in the United States, in the Southeast, design, build, band that came along. And that was really kind of when things changed for us and kind of validated a little bit of the decision just to hang on and wait, wait for this manufacturing world to, to turn around. And fortunately, it did. Uh, in, in your uh, uh, company, you've seen then major growth within these last six years, I would think. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and that's kind of, you know, it's, you know, you look back on your career and your business and the things that, you know, I guess you're proud of and such. Um, you know, the last six years, we've, you know, we've grown in, in people probably 
I guess we, we went into the recession probably with 300 people, and we, you know, now we're up to like 600. You know, that's, that's over a period of like six years. And, you know, the neat thing about that for me is like, you know, when we hire people and you see people grow in their career and, and what they've chosen to do and, you know, just, I mean, not just kind of like they grow in the ability to, you know, calculate a steel load. You know, of course that comes along. But, you know, they grow in the ability to, to, to work in a team and work with people and be a part of something. Um, you know, that, that's kind of satisfying to me. And, you know, growth comes in many ways, right? Financial bottom line, sure. Top line, sure. You know, but when you're seeing, you know, a staff of people grow as a team, that's, that's pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Stephen, you know, one of the things that Lou and I talk about on the show when we have guests on who mm -hmm. are from uh, particular areas of manufacturing is robotics. Right. And what's happening in the industrial Internet of Things and yeah. machines being run by iPads instead of hands and feet. The new manufacturing facilities that you're putting in place, I'm sure you have to calculate in how many people are in the facility. Are you seeing calculations for less people and more automation? Yeah, I, I would say that that is, um, that, that is certainly a trend. I, I would not say that it's like we're seeing half of the numbers, right, that we were right. in probably five years ago. You know, but as we design these facilities and as our uh, design managers and architects kind of program the facilities, you're certainly seeing um, fewer people and, uh, and more uh, reliance on, on technology. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, funny thing is that kind of reliance on technology is actually translating pretty heavily out into onto the job site, you know, when we're building the facilities. So, yeah, I'm seeing it. Um, you know, our people are, I think, you know, robotics is, in, in the automotive industry, has been around for, for quite a while, but uh, yeah, there'll be more reliance there. I do see, uh, you know, um, we're going to see more of the 3D world. We're using it a lot already, the 3D printing. Um, you know, for us, the 3D is, um, is illustrative to a customer or like say another team that's on the project, you know, it's just, you just can't be in terms of communication, holding an, uh, an object that is a smaller scale of what you're trying to build. And, you know, we've never been able to do that before. You know, it's the last three years, this is just, you know, you know just grown incredibly. So, right. You know, that 3D world for us, you know, we have a 3D printer. We just, you know, we just printed it, printed actually an entire project. Uh, it's for, um, for a Champions Pet Foods, a great company. Lots of, you know, it's a, it's a food plant, right, it's a, for pet right. food. This high, you know, new, you know, that goes under the new USDA standards. So we printed out. Uh, this, uh, you know, is a 300,000 square foot facility, but we printed it down to a scale that, you know, the facility probably fit on a table of probably eight feet long by four by five feet wide and had all the equipment in it. You know, just, to, you know, when you're showing people that and, and to sit back and think of where you are now in, in, the, in our world of construction, you know, 
nobody could have really even imagined that probably 20 years ago. It's just a massive change that we're going through. So anyway, 3D printing for us, it's a big deal. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, I even think of that for the, the movie industry. They used to you know, build little scale models and yeah. took a lot of people and a lot of time. How are you seeing the workforce change and the skill set change, Stephen, both in, in your facility and in the facilities that you're going to be building for your customers? You know, um, one of the things that, you know, a big change that's going around is, okay, in design, you know, 30 years ago, you know, all of, or maybe 35, 30 years ago, all the design was done with pencils and blue lines, and uh, you made these things called blueprints, right? Right. <laughs> no one knows what a blueprint is anymore. So that was done on T-bars and things like that, the old architectural scale. And then it, this thing came along called CAD, you know, computer-assisted design drawing. Right. And you know, a whole generation of uh, designers were educated and skilled on that. And, you know, now the, you know, the 3D model is coming along. And it's not, you know, it's not a CAD system. You know, it's building something in three dimensions. And, and that's, you know, and it's taken me a while to realize this, that, you know, that's a whole new training level. Now, we're seeing it in on our side of the world, but I'm sure that's, you know, that that is that is impacting the manufacturing world as well too. That's just a whole new level of training. So the young folks that are coming in today, you know, that's what they're fluent in, and that's what they're learning about, and that's what they're excited about. And you couple the 3D, couple that with the 3D pr printing. Yeah, it's an you know it's a lot of rapid change there, and it's got you know that's a level of training that. You know, you just can't go down the street and get a two-week certificate on that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. No doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, so I like where that's going. It's, it's fascinating. That I would love to be able to get up to your facility and see a plant laid out, a manufacturing plant on a conference room table. Oh, and um, let me tell you what. <laughs> you're, uh, you're singing to, to me right now because, uh, you know, we had one of that, that – facility I was just telling you about, we had it printed out, um, you know, you walk in, you see it, and, and owners, you know, customers' eyes just get big when they see that. So, <laughs> actually, we had to give that one to the customer, so that's there. So, I'm like, hey, guys, man, we got to print that again, please. And um, it's like, you know, that cost us $15,000. And I was like, okay, I, I got it. Let's print it. And um, so, you know, we got another facility, which is, uh, it's a... Um, hog processing facility, great customer, you know, um, and we're going to print that model out too. And that's the neat thing about that is, and man, I've been through a zillion plant tours, kind of like you guys, and, uh, you know, to go through, this is a the Clemens family up in Philadelphia. It's a great family business. It's been around for 125 years, and uh, 10,000 10, hogs come out, go in every day, and, uh, and bacon comes out the other side, and so this is wow. uh, we're getting yeah we're getting ready to build we are constructing their new facility in uh, Michigan, and uh, we're going to print that whole facility out too, and it'll be like the same kind a little bit bigger it's probably about a five hundred thousand square foot facility. We're designing and engineering that too, and just the communicative ability of a printed you know a whole printed 
facility on a table, you know, like five by eight, and the customer can go in and he can pick up a whole line and pull, pull it off the table and turn it and move it. You know, we've right. never had that ability to do that before, and, you know, customers are all about this. Sorry, sure they you, are. Got, uh, you got me happy there, so. And that's okay. I'm sure there's a lot of questions out of their mind because they can actually see and touch what they're going to experience in reality. So, knowledge, I'm glad you're using it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a you know, fair amount. I think that printer for us costs, uh, the, I think it's probably $20,000, I believe. And, um, you know, the, the cost to operate it are, are in the, uh, you know, the plastics. That, you, that, that stuff's pretty expensive, but. You know, for what we do, I think it's, you know, you just got to have one. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, yeah, it know, helps the other sell things, the product. Yeah, clearly. Um, what are you seeing in terms of where plants are being built, Steve? Okay. You know, um, I, the, the quick answer to that is, is um, for what we do, right, in the United States, the American Southeast. We do a little bit of work up in Canada, but really in the U.S., what we see, it's, you know, if you had to throw a, a dart and, and you wanted it to land somewhere and you wanted to design and build manufacturing facilities, you'd want to land in the Southeast. And that's pretty much where I would say 60 to 70 percent of it's going. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a, you know, that, that whole climate is is just pretty friendly to the manufacturing world. Now, there are some, you know, we've got a very nice project in California right now, um, Texas as well, um, a little bit in Indiana, um, some in Kentucky, but it's just hard to beat, you know, what's going on in the southeast, really. Uh I just got a text message from one of our listeners who wants to ask a question of you. Uh, your basically uh, concept is basically design and build. Do you do any redesign and build? I mean, there's a lot of empty uh, uh, facility space in this country that's going to waste. Are, are there opportunities where you can redesign a building? You're seeing some of that. Yeah, and you're right about the abundance of space, uh, and you'll see we're seeing a. Uh, I would say that's probably less than ten percent of our total business, uh, and it, and I, here's I believe what the thought process of a customer goes through. Um, you know, they're they're going to look for the bottom line, and they're going to most of the time they're going to have to redesign pretty heavily uh, around an existing facility. Unless it's, you know, if it's a pretty light manufacturing process, it's probably, you can, it'll work. Uh, but the more complicated the manufacturing process, the more you have to go into, uh, you know, digging up floor slabs, putting in new foundations, uh, beefing up the steel, uh, putting in, uh, tearing out electrical, uh, putting in big new electrical loads. You know, the, it's a harder decision to, to validate. If it's a pretty light manufacturing load, yeah, it works. But the more complicated and heavier the manufacturing load is, the harder it is to make a, uh, I guess, a renovation or a repurpose work. 
Right. Yeah, it certainly right. makes sense, Stephen. Certainly makes sense. Now, are you also saying, you know, we've had Harry Moser on the show from uh, Reshoring Initiative. He's talked about uh, what's happening in terms of jobs coming back to the U.S. I'm assuming that you're seeing plants coming back to the U.S. Is that accurate? You know, um, a little bit. Um, you know, our breakdown is is much more what we're seeing is um, foreign direct investment and much more of uh, the Europeans, Germans particularly, um, Japanese as well. Uh, that's probably uh, 70% of our business right now is, is foreign is foreign direct investment. Set of our manufacturing work, 70% of it is foreign. And how, much they, that, how much of that is coming from Asia? Uh, of that, it, it's probably uh, 30 to 40%. Mm, interesting. You know, the balance of that is Europe. You know, we're just seeing a lot. You know, Germany is very um, uh, friendly to the U.S. right now. Seeing a lot of German manufacturers, a lot of that is you know what we see is centered around the you know, the uh, German automotive manufacturers. I was going to ask, are there any particular industries that both Germany and Japan are in that make manufacturing here attractive to them? Uh, yeah, like uh, you know, I was just on is you know automotive solid there, um, you know, Japanese chemical, um, pretty significant. Um, <clears throat> so I'd say it's, you know, the big ones, those, the, the domestic, you know, what I'm seeing is, um, domestic on food and beverage is, is pretty much, you know, we're seeing some foreign on food and beverage, but most of that is, is the U S U S based on, on that market for us, food right. and beverage manufacturing. Well, yeah, that would probably make sense. They're closest to their distribution points. Yeah. Um, so I, I can understand food and beverage. Um, where do you see it, uh, you know, if you had a crystal ball, Stephen, does it look like it's still going to remain strong? And I'll tell you why I'm asking. Everything that we're reading says 16 has been a little soft, 17 will pick up a little, GDP in the two-point-something range, 18 a little better. I mean, they talk as if this, this role is going to continue maybe out to 2020. Uh, your sense of it, is it going to go that far? You know, I probably follow a lot of the same people that you do, and, and those that's what I'm hearing. Uh, 1920, you know, still a, a pretty solid outlook uh, for manufacturing in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, like I was telling you a minute ago, our, our pipeline our pipeline is still pretty, pretty strong. Um, and that's, you know, for us, our pipeline, our sales pipeline is, you know, six months to a year out there. So I'm not sure. Doesn't look like it did in 2008, nine <laughs> at all. I mean, you well, know, remember things just, you know, everything just fell off the table. And for us, it was December of 2008. Yeah, and a lot of things fell off the table in December 2008. Well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that because uh, I'm sure. Blues business is looking out into that uh, the future crystal ball, trying to see where things are going. Been a little yeah. soft in the first quarter of uh, 2016, but All Metals and Floors Group tends to be a company that is seeing things happening six or nine months into the future. You're, you're buying forgings to go into equipment, and that's not something you can build in 
six weeks. It's something that takes six to nine months to, to create and get to the end user. So I think that's what we're seeing as well. Yeah. So it looks yeah. fairly strong. Yeah, so, you uh, so all, I don't have to, go ahead. No, so you all are kind of seeing it or, or you feel pretty pretty solid about that 2019-2020 outlook? Uh, we do, uh, and we're beginning to see spurts now where, uh, you know, we have some good months and, and not so good months. But uh, back last year, uh, most of the months were not good. Uh, and the shop in Chicago that I mentioned earlier, uh, losing $350 million in sales against $500 million is, makes a very strong statement as to what went on in the Rust Belt last year. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're all recuperating from that kind of, well, their losses are, are a lot worse than most, uh, but it takes a long time to come back. Looking into the future, uh, you know, the first, the first quarter typically is not a good quarter for lots of reasons. Uh, uh, recuperating from the holidays, uh, new budgets, uh, uh, contracts that were going to be booked in December, they, they, they don't book them for another 30 days until you get into February, March. Um, it's, uh, we're, that's what we're seeing. And uh, uh, we follow some polling companies like the Institute of Supply Management, uh, and I've been following them for 40 years, and uh, they're rarely wrong. Uh, actually, I think they only had to rescind a report once in their entire 50 years, uh, and that was uh, about a year ago. Uh, That's right. But yeah, but t typically uh, we're we're seeing an upward trend. Slow, what I refer to is crawling slowly forward. <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah, a little bloody knees. Uh, we're speaking with Stephen Gray, President and CEO of Gray Construction. We're going to be back with Stephen in just a few minutes after a short commercial break. Stay with us and stay tuned. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. There's only one way to improve quality while driving supply chain efficiency. Attend ISM 2016, the largest supply management conference on earth, with over 100 supply management sessions from the most successful companies on the planet, Walmart, Google, Toyota, and many others. Keynote Alan Mulally, former president of Ford, will tell you how supply chain reform helped drive one of the biggest manufacturing turnarounds in history. It all happens May 15th to the 18th at the Indianapolis Convention Center. Go to ism2016.org to find out more and register now. That's ism2016.org. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. 
Visit us at SteelForge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're speaking with Stephen Gray, President and CEO of Gray Construction. It's a family-owned company in the design-build industry, uh, kind of a fascinating conversation on how that next manufacturing plant gets built and what it looks like. Lou, you had a uh, thought you wanted to uh, share with Stephen. Go ahead. Well, to, to your point uh, that you just made, uh, Stephen, for the sake of uh, our listeners, uh, can you tell us how the company approaches a project once you have a project to do? Uh, your, the process and step and how uh, you develop the process uh, and work with the client about all of his issues, about where machines go, where people have to uh, eat their lunches, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and how do you make it easier or better uh, than perhaps a general contractor would? I mean, yeah. we all understand about general contractors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, I don't even have to get into that. Yeah. Let's, okay. let's put it this way. We're doing a new kitchen in, uh, in my home, and we've now gone through the 11th contractor and finally settled on one, and that's <laughs> taken three years. Uh, yeah, there's not, nothing like a kitchen renovation. <laughs> so, yeah, you bet. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so interesting that question is, and, you know, some customers come to the table and they know exactly what they want. Some of them come to the table and all they can tell you is, on December the 1st of 2017, these widgets have to go out the door. Get me there. So, uh, you know, it's um, on the, that type of customer, uh, which, you know, basically has a schedule to meet and they know what they want to make. Essentially what you're doing is you're, you're putting a bunch of engineers in a room for a couple of weeks, right? And uh, we yeah. all know how exciting that can be. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you and it, those are the people who really kind of understand it, right? Uh, but what you kind of need in an environment like that of, of a bunch of engineers, you need somebody who's able to be, um, you know, kind of organize those folks and, and get them um, to communicate well. And usually that is a um, an architect um, and you know, if you've been around enough architects, some of them are are, are almost English majors, you know, and um, 
So, you know, a good design manager is really someone who brings that team together. And depending on the complexity of the project, you know, you can get a good kind of layout together within, you know, maybe a week. And the more complex the project is, you know, it can take um, much longer. Uh, you know, kind of interesting story uh, along those lines is the project I was discussing earlier, Champion Pet Foods, Canadian company. Um, you know, they basically had the idea, and you know, we we won the project from them. Kind of the neat thing about that was, and it was we we put all of our engineers in a room, and we put the project the construction managers in a room, and then we put the owner the customers engineers in a room, and that was what you know that was the team room, and they that was in our office, and that. That team stayed together in one large room for almost a whole year, and right. that was yeah, that was pretty neat. And it was the first time we really tried it, and you know, it was just the, the environment that was created was just you know, you know, hyper communication. There were no walls in there. Everybody is sitting at tables right across from each other, and you know, for example, you know, the electrical project manager you know, might have, you know, heard of a problem with a piece of equipment that changed the load. Well, the, the another project manager in the room, just because he's there, just because he heard a phone call, he heard that and knows that he's got to make a change too. So, you know, that was kind of a, you know, that overall, like, again, I'll just call it the team room. And you had the customer, the designer, us, and the contractor, us, and, and at, at certain times, we had key suppliers of the customer's equipment, and uh, we had key uh, suppliers of, let's say, the electrical subcontractor. You know, we put as many people in that room as we could, and at one time, you know, there were, there were 18 people pretty much living in that room. So, you know, as I look forward, you know, for, you know, large, complex projects, I'd say that's a nice model for the future. And I'd say that, you know, whatever your industry you're in, any kind of environment that you can create where you, you kind of accelerate communication is a good thing. So that was a long answer, Lou, to uh, probably a pretty specific question. So, No, a, a very valid, valid point. And uh, I think that uh, the listeners should heed that because uh, a one-man band, uh, if he has to drag his team to get to the mission success, uh, it, it's a harder approach than doing it as a team a team approach, I would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, it's like everybody's got egos, right? But yeah. you know, when you're in an environment like that, you just got to check them at the door. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we, we ought to tell the Congress that. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> I I take pot shots at the government every now and again. You you'll have to forgive me, uh, Stephen. Uh, before we uh, forget, let's uh, get you to give us your uh, uh, website address, uh, and if you want to put out your email address, uh, be my guest. Yeah, well, uh, I can't take credit for this, but I, I wish I could. You know, back in the days when nobody knew what www meant, um, and I don't know who did it, but. Somebody we we gobbled I think up, I did, actually. Yeah, we gobbled <laughs> up gray.com. So it can't be any easier than that. 
www.gray.com. That's a winner. That was very intuitive. And even in my email, it's super easy. It's sgray at gray.com. S oh, that's terrific. That yeah. sounds like Pig Latin. That's yeah. great. I'm thinking about that. Stephen, when okay. you're doing uh, a 3D modeling for a plant and you have a supplier to the plant who's putting in a large piece of equipment for the food processor or whatever the, the product is that's going to be manufactured in the plant, do you now have any suppliers bringing in you know what you and I used to look at as little toy models of their equipment that is the scale that you could now put in your three large three d model I, yeah, absolutely. the one I was you know the champion project I was just telling you about that that's exactly what we did you know we got the we got their um their three d model we plugged it into our our printing system, and you know bam, we printed it out um yeah, I'll send you the you know picture of it if you want to see it. But uh, you know we have oh, all the lines, the ovens, the extruders, the vessels, uh, you know the the packaging equipment. You know it's um, you know we got we got all of the suppliers to give us that information, and so yeah, it's it's easy to do. Not easy. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, I guess it's just incredible that it can be done. Yeah, that's the fascinating. You know, that's what I was just talking about earlier is just a phenomenal amount of change that we've had in visually communicating ideas and um, and designs in the last few years is just, you know, just stunning, really. Yeah, it clearly has to be. When, when you're doing a uh, model and uh, creating some uh, samples, What's what does it take uh, time-wise to create a uh, 3D plastic uh, model of a particular either piece of machinery or a building or what have you? Is, so, is there uh, a, a lot of programming involved? Well, yeah, all the all the work is up is up front. Yeah, getting it into the model, and then right. I'm guessing it's probably like a. You know, this is kind of a wild guess, but you know that's okay, right? So sure. I'm saying at this point, technology is about one to one, I believe. I mean, in terms of design time or 3D model times or 3D print time, that's a guess, okay? Mm. But best, right. okay. I, I'm thinking that you know that the printing time is is going to collapse a little bit, and I think it's probably going to you know get to. Oh, probably, you know, maybe half of that. Our experience with that job that I was telling you about, the Champion Pet Foods job, that project, again, 300,000 square feet total project, we printed it down to probably a 5-foot by 8-foot total. Uh, so that took all the pieces of equipment that were in there, and that was probably took about three weeks to total print. So, wow. Yeah. So and then yeah, they me, get to, and then they get to tell you, I want the washroom moved over there. I want the yeah, water right. cooler over here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the thing you bring up there is, you're right, changes. And you know, 
living in the manufacturing world, you guys know it. it you know, a, a customer is going to tinker with the thing until it's just done. And, you know, you just got to accept that, you know, because they're always looking for ways to improve things, you know, especially when you get the, the last guy to get involved is the maintenance guy, right? And, you know, he's always got, he's always got great changes. But the 3D world, you know, really helps helps them um, visualize things. The other thing that's going along with that, just the printed model I was telling you about, you know, now you're being able to use these these uh, goggles, right? And you can walk right through these buildings, and you, you get a lot of vertigo when you put these goggles on. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's, it, those are pretty neat. We've used the, we we probably uh, used those probably on about three projects now. And I think that technology is just going to get better and better. The proverbial uh, Star Wars holodecks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Lou and I experienced that at Fabtech back in November of 2015. They had a company there that did uh, 3D imaging, and you put on uh, glasses and you walked through the thing that you were going to build. And, th and this particular thing was a large piece of equipment that was uh, – probably 60 feet long and two stories high and uh, 20 or 30 feet wide. So it was a fascinating thing to see. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen, in terms of, you know, in the 1980s, and, and your older brothers experienced this, everybody was convinced that Japan was going to take over America. Yeah. And they were going to out-manufacture us and blow us away. In the last, you know, since uh, 1995 or so, we were all convinced it was going to be China. Where do you see it today? Because of course, neither of those things are coming through. Yeah. Where where do I see uh, as as far as a potential threat or just like well, that, it's, it's you know, U.S. manufacturing as compared to China U.S. manufacturing competitiveness? Where do you see us? I I think we're <clears throat> you know I think we're going to be extremely solid there. Um, you know, the U.S. has just got a lot of great things going for us. You know, and I think one of the biggest things it's it's underappreciated and it's especially in a in election season when everybody's seeing what's what's wrong with everything you know it's just we we underappreciate how stable we are as a um as a as a civilization i guess or as a um as a as a government as, as a as a country really how stable right. we really are when you look at the rest of the world you know, I'd say Europe's, you know, obviously pretty stable too, but in, you know, Japan and such, but, you know, there's big, big chunks of the world that just, you know, don't have the stability and I guess the respect for government systems, capital systems, financial systems that we have. So, and, you know, that didn't happen overnight, but it, but I think it's, we just, we underplay that. We don't realize how important it is because I've got a brother who says this all the time. The last thing a fish can describe is water. Well, we see it all the time, you know, and we really don't notice it. But if you're over there, you probably notice it. So in a, you know, in answer to your question, you know, I think we're, you know, that helps our competitiveness tremendously. There's some other things too, you know, like, you know, energy. Energy is a great thing. Uh, for the U.S., um, you know, kind of, um, you know, we still have a solid workforce, very good workforce compared to big chunks of the rest of the world. Um, 
you know, one thing that, you know, our foreign customers tell us a lot is, you know, the rest of the world is, uh, the U.S. every day is like Christmas to big chunks of the rest of the world in terms of, you know, we like to go buy stuff, right? So, you know, it's, it, and, cust you know, foreign customers will want to be a part of that. They're going to want to be here and, and grab this American market. So, you know, I like to, I don't see any big, you know, huge negatives coming. I think we need to protect these things. I think we need to realize it. Uh, probably we need to, you know, to work on some things. But, you know, the U.S. and kind of a wrap this whole comment up, it, you know, U.S. is still a good place to be. Yeah, it clearly is. Uh, Stephen, how about infrastructure innovations that are going to drive manufacturing? What do you see down the road in the next uh, two to five years that's going to change manufacturing? Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you asked me earlier, what part of the U.S. is geographically very solid for manufacturing? Um, and I said the southeast. You know, one of the advantages that the southeast has, let's, let's say, over the, you know, dead center of the U.S. is, you know, uh, access to ports. Uh, you know, like... I live in Kentucky. Kentucky is just not going to build a port, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, but I would say that uh, connecting the ports to, you know, inland, you know, you know, maybe up to 500 miles or so, you know, really effective um, infrastructure around that, uh, moving product to the ports and moving product uh, from the ports um, is going to be, uh, important. Meanwhile, they're not fixing the potholes in Manhattan. Yeah, I was, was yeah. going to say, uh, what are they doing in terms of uh, fixing our infrastructure, roads, bridges, and tunnels in this country? You know, um, you know I, I think there's a recent uh, recent transportation bill that they they're throwing a lot of money at that. Um, you know. I, I really don't know how effective it's going to be. I mean, it could could be very good. I just can't speak um, to that. I do know that, you know, when companies locate uh, um, to the U.S., that um, I would say that, that that is an important part, but I would say things like uh, the workforce, energy, local incentives, are probably in the top. I would say that the infrastructure for these customers is almost like um, after they are established in a location, they really look more to that. Um, okay. You know, you know, the, the southern U.S. as far as uh, the infrastructure costs of maintenance is probably less than the northern states, right? Um, right. So I'd say, you know, that may be, you know, a small uh, ongoing cost advantage, you know, maybe of the southern states. Not not totally positive on that, but it's kind of what I feel. Uh, Stephen, I, I just got back from uh, Houston. Uh, right. I was at the Offshore, uh, offshore Technology uh, Conference, and uh, I haven't been down to Houston in a while, and something hit me. You know, they just had the, all these floods. And, you know, we were talking uh, earlier about what you do about design and build. And I, in talking to some of the people from Houston, 
and there was still floodwaters around uh, uh, from their less sudden floods, that the design and build mentality that existed in Houston when they built some of their highway systems and their local road systems is Mm. absolutely incredible. Because what they have done, for whatever reason, they instead of building overpasses to roads, they dug underneath roads. And you now have these, uh, everywhere you go, you have these uh, huge areas that go down under a road. And there's little or no drainage from uh, those. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it, but eight, eight people had drowned. Uh, just in this last flood. And when I heard about that, I said, well, does that always happen? Well, every time those uh, those underpasses flood out because there's no drainage. And somebody sat around the table with a bunch of engineers or maybe not enough engineers, and no one thought about this. So this is a good reason why to deal maybe with a, a second set of eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Good point. Do you do any? Do you do any municipal projects? You know, we uh, you know years ago, um, probably in the early seventies, uh, we did we did a small amount of it, but uh, you know it, we just really stayed away from the you know the private world is really where we we excel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, government contracting is um, you, know, you just really have to be um, set up. In in for that, and we're just we've not we're just not set up for that. Uh, for us, you know, we like the manufacturing world because you know they they move very quickly, and they're all about you know again you know they want to get the widget out the door as rapidly as possible and come to the uh, table with solutions and help them. Yeah, the government doesn't move. The government doesn't move that quickly. I don't know. It has not been my experience. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've yeah. heard that said before. The private sector has to make a buck, and they can't have uh, 450% cost overruns like the F-35. Uh, Stephen, anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up here? You know, um, I just, you know, I'll go back and, you know, my mom and dad just kind of where we were, where we are now in 2016, and where we were in 1960, and in a manufacturing perspective, uh, just kind of every now and then it's kind of neat to look back and reflect on things. But you know, my mom and dad started the company in 1960, and they were both uh, World War II vets. They were both in the Navy. My mom was um, she was in the waves, and she actually outranked my father as a lieutenant, and she never let him forget it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And so, really, when they started the business up in 1960, that was when really manufacturing was really moving, you know, back to the or to the south from the north in small little satellite plants. And that's really where my mom and dad, you know, really got their their start. And uh, you know, Lou, you may remember the old, uh, well, the Eaton Corporation. And, no, uh, sure. Yeah, Eaton Axle, and they came to a little town called Glasgow, Kentucky. And that's where we were from. And, uh, you know, my dad, he built the job, and we had a, actually our first significant design-build contract. And, uh, then, you know, the thing, our father died during that project, and my brothers were 19 and 21, 
and my mom was in her 50s, and uh, they kept the company going and really just continuing manufacturing throughout southern Kentucky, and then it just kind of grew into Tennessee and and then further south. And, you know, really our, the story of our business is really the history of manufacturing since 1960 in the south. And uh, it's been fun. You know, I've, uh, you know, you just meet great as long, people. As long as it's fun and you're making money, the world is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Stephen, could you give us again for the late tune-in listeners your URL and uh, your unique email address? Okay. Yeah, it's uh, gray.com, G-R-A-Y.com, and my email is S-G-R-A-Y at G-R-A-Y.com. That's terrific. Thank you. Stephen, thanks for being on the show with us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Had fun. Very well. We've been talking with Stephen Gray, President and CEO of Gray Construction, and we'll be uh, introducing some uh, exciting new topics in future shows, so always stay tuned to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>